Well, it is so good to see you, finally. I feel like I should reintroduce myself to you. Yeah, at the last service, uh, people clapped and, and, and Chuck was shaking his head. Pastor Chuck was shaking his head. He's like, that's how bad it's been this summer. Rich, they're ready for you. And, um, and you're, my wife, every once in a while, will have this phrase where she'll look at me and she's like, well, you're stuck with me. And I'm like, well, I'm going to preach the next 18 out of 20 weeks, so you're stuck with me for a while. So I, ho- I, hope, I hope that we get to have a good time together. It's, it's an incredible privilege to just take a different change of pace and now to be ready to charge ahead. I'm so excited for what we're about to explore and to do together. We got a new series that we're launching into today, and I want to begin by uh, putting a great image up on the screen here and telling you that my daughter Danica about a year ago decided, you know what, I am going to learn how to play golf. And when you're a dad and you're a golfer and you hear that, your heart just explodes, right? Like, yes, I'm so excited. Guilt-free golf um, because you get to be with your family and golf all at the same time. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And so um, Danica starts taking lessons and she starts going to the driving range and she's practicing and she's, she's learning. And I'm like, Danica, but you know, like the driving range is not where the action is. That's not where the game is. We, we got to go play. And she's like, okay, well, let's, let's go play. So after a couple of months of, you know, practicing, rehearsing, learning, all these kinds of things, we go out and we're going to go play like seven or eight holes together. And I'm one of those annoying parents that thinks that every moment is a teachable moment. Um, I exhaust my kids, and uh, it drives them crazy. And so it's not like, hey, we're just going to go play golf. It's like, okay, you're also 15 at the time. You are are getting your learner's permit, and so you're going to drive the golf cart, so you need to work on that. And then, you know, also while we're playing, you're going to have to kind of learn the rules of the game and the etiquette of the game. There's a lot of that stuff. It's not just hitting balls in golf. You've got to learn all that kind of stuff. And in addition to that, I'm like, you got to learn how to keep score. So I'm not going to keep score. You're the one who's going to keep score. You're going to keep it in the cart. I will tell you what I get. You write what you get down, write down what I get down. And so you're in charge of all these different things. That's a lot of things going on um, at the same time. And boom, we launch and we start playing golf. We're having fun. And after a couple of holes, I mean, I'm just kind of feeling it. Like I'm in the zone and I'm, I'm playing really well and I get through like six or seven holes, whatever it is, and I'm like, wait a minute, I need to check the math because I think I'm on fire right now. And so I'm like, Danica, let me, let me have the scorecard. And so she hands over to the scorecard to me. This is the scorecard. I kept it. This is what she handed to me. I just absolutely immediately busted out laughing because on hole one, she's thinking like, I did really well. I get a smiling face. Hole number two, she rocked it. She's like, I'm getting sunshine for this one. Hole number three, she hit it in the water. So she gave herself a boat. Hole number four, she hit a tree. And so like she gave herself a tree. Hole number five, she didn't do very well. So she gave herself a dog. And I mean, like, I'm looking at this and I'm just absolutely dying and the moral of the story is, you know, there's more than one way to keep score. (laughs) And here I am obsessed with what's my number and how am I doing over par and my daughter has and was teaching me something about not just the game of golf but the game of life, like there's a whole other way to look at this. There's a whole other way to keep score and the point is, is that how you keep score will direct how you play the game of life. 
So let me just ask you, what's your working scorecard right now? When you look at your life, how are you tallying up how you are doing? How are you counting for how things are going? Like, is your scorecard all about kind of approval? Is it all about like the likes and the dislikes and the yays and the nays and the thumbs up and the thumbs down that I might get? Or maybe your scorecard is all about accumulation. Maybe for you it's about more is always better and bigger is always better and the latest is always better. So for you it's about amassing something. Or maybe your scorecard is one of accomplishment. Maybe you're the kind of person that's driven by the success of checking something off your list and doing it really, really well. What's on your scorecard? At the same time, you know, scorecards like this, they're not just for individuals, they're for organizations, they're for corporations, they're for churches even. Even churches have scorecards. When someone walks up to me and says, how's your church doing? The way that I answer that question is always based on kind of how I perceive the scorecard of the church. Most of the time in churches, when we talk about our scorecard, we talk about it in terms of the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. How's your church doing? Well, you know, worship was up or worship was down in attendance or buildings, like our facilities are doing really well or this is where it's behind or this is how much money came in. This is how much money went to missions. That's the way that most people have a scorecard in the church. And yet, here in the church, we've said that we think our mission is our privilege to join Christ daily in the restoration of all things. Can we really say that that's our mission, and yet what we're measuring is how many people showed up, how the facilities are, and how much money came in? Or maybe even more specifically, if we really do believe in this incredible partnership, and that your life and mine, and what God's doing in the kingdom is, is that we're being restored What does restoration look like? Does restoration honestly look like you showed up, you didn't trash the facility, and you gave some money? Is that what restoration is? That's not what restoration is. And so how are we keeping track at the church? Well, we in the leadership have tried to answer this question. There's a lot of different scorecards. There's a lot of different ways to try to answer this question, but... This is how we answer it. We say that a life that is being restored or a life that is joining Christ is a life that is of more and more grace. It's more grace-filled. And the way that we describe it, grace is an acronym with four things. G-R, grateful. A, available. C, curious. And E, encouraging. Now, is it me or is this a different kind of scorecard than the ABCs? Are you more grateful than you are six months ago? Are you more available than you were last week? Are you more curious about other people or about God or about knowledge in general? Are you more encouraging now than you were before? This this is the scorecard I think that really matters. I mean, certainly, Um, Things like the ABCs, you ask leaders to pay attention to things. We've got to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. So it doesn't mean that that we don't care about those kinds of things. But I honestly don't think I'm going to get to heaven one day and Jesus is going to say, let's talk about the 2018 budget. But I will think that there will be conversations about encouragement. 
Rich, were you doing everything you could to build up other people and encourage them? I think that will be a different kind of accounting. And so we're walking through a new series, and it's, it's kind of not just one series. It's long. It's 16 weeks. It's actually a four-mini-series. It's four weeks on grateful, four weeks on available, four weeks on curious, and four weeks on encouraging. And we're going to try to not just talk about these things and con- concepts, but talk about it on the behavioral level. How can we actually do more of these things and become more like these attributes? I don't know about you, but I want to have a life that has more grace in it. And so we're going to start with these four weeks talking about gratitude, and we have one little step that we want you to experiment with this week, and we want you to keep a list. It's real simple. We just want you to keep a list. And over the course of this message, hopefully you'll understand what I mean by that. There's a humorist, a guy by the name of A.J. Jacobs, and uh, in his most recent book, it's called Thanks a Thousand, A Gratitude Journey, he launches into the book by saying this. He says, it's Tuesday morning and I'm in the presence of one of the most mind-boggling accomplishments in human history. This thing is so astounding in its complexity and its scope, it makes the Panama Canal look like a third grader's craft project. This marvel I see before me is the result of thousands of human beings collaborating across dozens of countries. It took the combined labor of artists, chemists, politicians, mechanics, biologists, miners, packagers, smugglers, and goat herders. It required airplanes, boats, trucks, motorcycles, vans, pallets, and shoulders. It needed hundreds of materials, steel, wood, nitrogen, rubber, silicon, ultraviolet light, explosives, and bat guano. It has caused great joy, but also great poverty and oppression. It relied upon ancient wisdom as well as space-age technology, freezing temperatures and scorching heat, high mountains, deep water. What is this? It is my morning cup of coffee. And I am really, really, really grateful for it. When you and I go to the store and we order a cup of coffee, there is so much that is invisible. To us, it's a transaction. It's you pay for something and this hot, wonderful liquid that wakes you up is given to you into your hands. But if your mind is willing to go on the journey of the complexity of all that is behind a cup of coffee, you realize that so much has been given to you in order for that to happen. And so AJ, as he was enjoying his cup of coffee from his favorite local coffee shop in New York City, he says, you know what? I've got an idea. I'm going to try to personally thank, in person thank every person who contributed to the cup of coffee that I am. And so he started that journey. It was pretty easy. The first person he went to was the barista, the woman who sells him the coffee and serves it to him. Then he started with management. And then after that, things started to get a little more complicated. Imagine the effort that it took for him to track down, to go across the world, to go to these people. These are the individuals who picked the beans of the coffee that he was privileged to enjoy every single time he showed up for somebody who had helped, whether it was in marketing or in farming or whatever it was, and he said, I just want to let you know 
and I'm thankful. There's something within us, there's something very basic, whether we consider ourselves religious or not, that knows that we ought to get to the source, we ought to get to the origin, we ought to be able to get to the beginning and express our gratitude for what we have received. And we know that we live in an entitled age. We know we live in a distracted age where, where we don't notice and we take for granted all the considerable blessings and luxuries and good things that we are all privileged to enjoy. And yet hidden behind all of that is some invisible hand and forces. And my question for you is, are you willing to go on that journey get all the way back to the beginning of the source of every good and perfect gift. We tend to think that things like entitlement, like that they were invented with millennials or something. No, entitlement and forgetfulness and taking things for granted, that's been going on for a long, long time. In fact, it went on a long time ago for God's people It was a part of the journey where Moses was standing here. This is the top of Mount Nebo. This is the precipice upon where the Israelites were going to go into the promised land. And before they went into the promised land, Moses gave a series of TED Talks that were filled with instructions. They were actually called like sermons back then. But giving these different talks of warnings and encouragements before they were actually going to enter into the promised land, and the most famous of which is the Shema speech. And you heard a little bit about the beginning of it, but in the midst of that Shema speech, there, there's this moment where Moses says, look, you're going to inhabit, you're going to settle down, it's such a good thing, and when you do so, you're going to be in flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells you didn't dig, vineyards and olive graves you didn't plant, and then when you eat and when you are satisfied, be careful, be very, very careful that you do not forget, that you do not forget the Lord your God. Because it's easy to forget. And so what can we do about it? What can we do to not be so forgetful, to take for granted and be so entitled? Moses actually gives instructions on that. He tells them this. He says, you're to impress these things. Um, And when he's saying that, he's talking about the commands of God as well as the promise of God. You're impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Moses is like, you've got to talk about this all the time or it'll fall off of your radar. You've got to have all of these little visual reminders, personal reminders, as well as reminders for your house. And most of all, you've got to write this down. Now, you have to remember, when Moses is telling them to write this down, he's telling them this 3,000 years ago. How easy was it to go to the local office depot to buy some art supplies to be able to write this stuff down? This was mostly an illiterate society. This is why they learned how to read, to be able to recount this over and over again. And so Moses is giving this instruction. And do you know how most things were written on back then? They were written on skins of animals. Sacrifice was required to write something down. 
And so they had this practice as God's people of rehearsing and repeating and writing down and little visual cues all over the place of what they were supposed to remember of the source of all of these things. If you've ever been to like a Jewish household or maybe even a Jewish business and you've seen the doorframe, you might have seen something like this. You might have seen um, this. This is known as a mezuzah. Um, you can see that there's a symbol on the left one. This is kind of like the most basic form of a mezuzah. And, um, and it's the symbol of the Shem, or where we get the phrase, the Shema from, from Deuteronomy 6. You can see the one on the right is a little more ornate. that has got the decoration of the tree of life on it, but the same symbol, the same letter at the top to remember that. There's all kinds of different versions that you can have all with the same letter to anchor these kinds of things. And so there's incredible artistry in the Jewish tradition for all of these things in different places, these different reminders. I remember when we were in San Antonio, uh, we did a men's Bible study on Thursday mornings, and, and there was a retired rabbi who came every single week to our Bible study. And whether it was the New Testament or it was the Old Testament, he just had profound kind of perspective and wisdom for us as we were to do this. And we were talking about uh, Deuteronomy 6 and the mezuzah and writing things down. And he said, well, I recently had some of my house renovated and my, my contractor came to me one day with the mezuzah in his hand, and he, and he said, look, this was on your doorframe. It looked like it was kind of religious or significant, and so I, I saved it for you. Um, but he said, but when I took it down, there was like some paper. Somebody had put some trash behind it, so I threw that stuff away, but then I wanted to make sure that you could have this. Well, the trash that was behind it was the scroll that had all the promises of God actually written on it. And so... The whole point was not just the thing on the wall, it was the writing that was behind it. When Moses uses the verb of how you're supposed to do this, he says you're to impress this upon your children. What that verb means in the original language there is it means you engrave something deeply like in stone. You repeat it over or chisel it over and over and over again. You keep hammering this home. I need to know that the, the goal of all of this was not writing it down, not repeating it just for the sake of writing it and repeating it. Moses tells us what the goal is. The goal is that these commandments that God is giving to us today, that they would be written in here, that they would sink deeply up here. So the point isn't, hey, we wrote it down, check the box, we're done. The point is to keep practicing and rehearsing these things till they become second nature till they become habit. Which is why we're entitling this series Grace Habits. Because we've got to figure out how can we get this to the level where we actually do it, not just conceptually know it, but how do we, we live it out each and every single day. You probably know what a habit is, but let's establish a baseline. A habit is an unconscious, automatic routine that you regularly follow. You've got good habits, you've got bad habits, right? You've got some good habits. Hopefully you brush your teeth every night, right? God's people, please tell me that you brush your teeth every single night. 
You probably don't have to think about brushing your teeth. You probably have your toothbrush and the little cup right there and you just kind of automatically brush your teeth. You don't have to meditate and ponder and pray over the fact of whether or not, Lord, tonight, do you want me to brush my teeth or do you not want me to brush my teeth? Speak to me, Lord, to help me to know. You don't have to pray that prayer because it's become an unconscious, automatic routine that you regularly follow and that that's good for you. You've probably got some bad habits, right? We could have spouses turn to one another right now and they could share their bad habits, but we're not gonna do that. Bad habits can be little things that we do like the chewing of our fingernails all the way to substance abuse. We've all got habits, some of them good, some of them bad. I've actually done re- they've actually done research on this and got to read some of it of what percentage, I want you to actually turn to somebody and answer this question. This one is safe for spouses. Um, what percentage of your life, of your waking hours is done by habit? Turn to somebody next to you. Uh, what, what do you think your percentage of your waking hours is done out of habit? All right, the answer is 40%. 40% of what you do while you are awake is actually done out of an automatic routine that you subconsciously and regularly follow. You're You're not thinking about it. You just do it. I mean, I typically go for a run a couple of days a week, and when I do, I run the exact same path that I always do. I don't have to think about putting one foot in front of the other. That way I'm able to listen to like a podcast or an audio book because otherwise running is really boring. It's become automatic. Hopefully driving for you after you learn how to drive is something that you automatically do. Some of you need to automatically relearn some of your driving habits in Atlanta. But you probably aren't thinking about the way that you drive. It's just what we do. And the reason that this is important is is that I'll bet there's a lot of people here today who have maybe been in churches their whole lives long and you have surrendered your conscious will to Jesus Christ. And if you're awake and alert and if somebody asks you something and if you're paying attention, you're like, yes, I will follow Jesus in that way. Let me ask you, have you given to God all of your life? Have you given to him the other 40%? with your technology use, with your free time, with your routines, with your ruts? Have you given Jesus all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind? Did you know that your body contains 11 million sensory receptors? There are 11 million different possibilities of input for your brain to receive. 10 of those 11 million receptors are all geared towards one sense, this sense right here, the gift of sight. And so it's no surprise that over 90% of our bodies are wired towards the gift of sight, that you and I are the kind of people that visual cues might be the most powerful part of our lives. And so when we see the right thing, we do the right thing. When we see the wrong thing, we do the wrong thing a lot of the time. 
There's a guy by the name of James Clear who wrote a wonderful book called Atomic Habits, and in this book, what he describes is how important it is to see with regards to self-awareness in our habits. And so he describes a great study that was done in the 1970s in the Netherlands in the midst of an energy crisis. In the midst of the energy crisis, they were evaluating different kind of households, and some households were high energy users, and some households were low energy users, and they were trying to figure out why, why were some households that had the same number of people and kind of the same number of square feet, why were they consuming so much more than these others? And they looked at every dimension socially they could think of, of education and, you know, kind of all the different demographic factors, and none of that stuff mattered. The only thing that mattered was where the electric meter was. If the electric meter during the energy crisis of the 1970s was located in the basement or in the back of the house where you never saw it, you were a high energy user. If your energy meter was located either by the door where you came in or on the first floor somewhere where you would pass by it on a regular basis, you were a better citizen and you were a low energy user during the midst of the crisis. In other words, the phrase, out of sight, out of mind, is absolutely true for what we're talking about in the way that we live. And so the way that James Clear puts it is this way. He says, if you want to eat more fruit, put a bowl on the kitchen counter. If you want to remember to take your medication each night, put your pill bottle directly next to the faucet on the bathroom counter. If you want to practice guitar more frequently, place your guitar stand in the middle of the living room. If you want to remember to send more thank you notes, keep a stack of stationery on your desk. If you want to drink more water, fill up a few water bottles each morning and place them in the common locations around the house. These are the visual cues that we stumble upon that remind us in the way that we're wired. And so the punchline is you got to make it obvious. You gotta make it visible. If you want to encourage something, if you want to do something, if you want to become different in a particular way, the first and most important thing that you've got to do is that you've gotta put it in your line of sight. This is what Moses is describing all the way back in the ancient wisdom of Deuteronomy chapter six. He's like, I could show up this day, I could give you this great speech, and it's going to go, woo, and you're going to totally forget it. But he doesn't do that. He gives them these visual cues of things to tie to their hands and put on their foreheads and put on their door frames, things that they might remember. And so if we want to be faithful to God's promises and remember these things, the goal isn't to write these things down, but we're going to have to internalize them and think of wise ways to do so. This is a woman by the name of Anne Voskamp. And when she was a little girl, her younger sister ran out chasing a cat that she wanted to play with. And a neighbor of one of the farms was coming in a vehicle and didn't see her and hit her and it tragically killed her. Anne says one of her earliest memories is of her face pressed up with her forehead against the cold window pane and she could just look out on the front porch of their house and that she could see her sister's body wrapped up in blankets that were stained with blood. And that that tragedy sent her family for a tailspin. It caused her mom to lose her sanity and it caused her dad to lose his faith. 
And that family walked away from God, didn't want anything to do with God anymore. And if Anne ever went to church as a child, it was because a neighbor came and picked her up and took her to church. Decades pass, and Anne can still feel the emptiness and the pain and the bitterness within her soul, and so she tries to do something about it. She just starts making a list. A list that keeps growing and growing of over a thousand things that she's thankful for. Things like morning shadows across old floors. She's thankful for jam piled high on the toast. Thankful for the cry of the blue jay high in the spruce. Thankful for the leafy life scent of the florist shop. Thankful for the creaking of old knees. Thankful for the faint aroma of cattle and straw. Thankful for the moonlight on pillows. Thankful for kisses in the dark. Thankful for the washing of the warm eggs. Thankful for the crackle in the fireplace. Thankful for the still warm cookies. Thankful for full rainbow bubbles and the soapy water. Over a thousand things getting more and more specific to the blessings of God. And as she started to make this huge list, God started to heal her heart of the tragedy of her childhood and her sister. And her soul began to open up with the possibilities of what God's grace might be. She began to pray in a whole new way. People come to me and they talk to me about how dry and how dull their prayer life is. And I think most of the time it's because, man, you are just swimming in the shallow waters of kind of platitudes before God. And if you want to break through in the depth, one of the things is, is you've got to get more and more specific. So let me ask you a question today. What are you thankful for? And are you willing to go beyond the I'm thankful for friends and family kind of blanket answer that we all give? So here's what I'm going to invite you into this week. Got a little challenge for you. Not all that hard. This week, every day, and I'm going to give you a little taste of this right now. I'm going to ask you to just set aside five minutes. That's it. Five minutes. And I want you to go ahead and pull out a pen right now or pull out your phone if you'd rather do it there. But go ahead and pull out a pen. We've got some room in the bulletin for you to do this today. Some of you are not moving right now. I can see you. I can see when you're not participating. I not only take attendance in this computer of mine, but I watch when you're not participating. So go ahead and do this. And for one minute... All I'm going to ask you to do, without filtering it, don't make it sound religious or anything along the I just want you to start listing things for one minute that you're thankful for. Get as specific as possible. Ready, set, go.
Look at this, you're 20% done with your homework for the day. I gave you one minute to do it, you jump-started it in school. But here's what I think you're gonna find out is that this is like exercising a muscle. It is gonna feel more awkward now than it does ever. Because most of us just don't take seriously the biblical mandate to count our blessings. And so just experiment it with this week. Again, the goal isn't writing it down. The goal is writing it down and making it visible. So put your notepad like somewhere on the corner of your desk or table. Put a sticky note on your bathroom mirror. Set a reminder on your phone. Just do something, but make it obvious. Make it visible so that there's a cue. Oh, yeah, five minutes to just be grateful. There's a true story in the New Testament of a time where Jesus was walking towards Jerusalem and he was skirting the border between Samaria and Judea. And he comes across this little village and while he's there, there's a group of 10 lepers. Lepers were outcasts. They not only had a disease that made you lose feeling and lose body parts as a result of the disease. They were ostracized and considered unclean and they weren't allowed to be a part of society so they had to stand at a distance and yell that they were unclean when someone would come by. And as Jesus came by, they stood at the distance and they yelled, have mercy on us. They knew who he was. They had heard of what he might be able to do for them and they're like, have pity on us. Now, one of the things that if you had ever been healed from a disease, if you had gotten cured, if your body had been restored, you couldn't just go back home. You had to go show yourself to a priest, and the priest could give you the okay, the blessing of whether or not you could go back and be restored to your home, to your family. And Jesus looks at these 10 lepers and from a distance, says, go and show yourself to your local priest. And so they scatter. They go to all the different villages from where they're from. And while they are walking towards their home village and their priest, each one of them is miraculously cured. And they all go home and they celebrate. But one of them, as soon as he was cured, turned around, raced back to Jesus, threw himself at Jesus' feet, and wept and said, thank you. Thank you. And Jesus said one of the more heartbreaking things he ever said. We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Ten of them healed, ten of them restored. Only one came back to say thank you. Only one came back to the source. And he was a Samaritan. All of society set up with these little visual cues of you're a half-breed, you're unwanted, you're not allowed here, you don't belong here, and every single one of those cues telling him who he's not, and then one saves him and restores him, and he can't help but run back and fall at his feet and say thank you. And when Luke records that he falls at his feet and he says thank you, he uses a really rare term for something like this. He falls at his feet and he says, Eucharist. 
which not only means the Lord's Supper, it's actually two different words in Greek, you meaning good, charis meaning grace. He falls at the feet of Jesus and he gives back the good grace that he has first received. God has poured out so many blessings. We couldn't even count them if we wanted them upon you and me and how rare it is that someone actually comes back to the source and says, thank you. 37 times in the New Testament, the word, the verb Eucharist is used. And in every single one of those moments, it is Eucharist to Almighty God and to God alone. But the Samaritan knows Jesus is the source. And I've got to say thank you. I don't think it will be enough for me to stand before you and to say, hey, become more grateful. Stop being so entitled. But here's what might work. Change your scorecard. And when you change your scorecard, I think Jesus will change you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that there's lots of different ways to pay attention, to keep score, but you call us to a new way, not based on our approval or accomplishments or accumulations, but upon your grace. Lord, we live in an entitled age. We take for granted all of the things that you've given to us, and it is so rare that we would return to the source of all of those things. And so forgive us for our forgetfulness. Impress upon us. Deeply, deeply repeat within us until it is within our hearts. Help us to follow you not just consciously, but unconsciously. And so God, enable us to orient our lives around the obvious markers of your goodness. Even in the midst of tragedy, help us to be specifically grateful for all that you give. And in the end, may we fall before you and with absolute sincerity say, thank you for all that you have done.